you learn from your home. And that means that people, especially as a child, your parents were the ones who made and or kept those promises. Uh, my father was high integrity, but low faith. So he hated to make promises and, uh, and, and because he, he just didn't want to be caught saying, you promised, you promised. And I think he probably learned growing up himself that he hated making promises that uh, would not be kept. Well, because of that, what usually happened was I would ask, can I do this? Can I have this? Can I buy this? Can I, will you let me, you know, be involved in a certain activity? And what I would usually hear from dad was, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But I want you to know this. When we got to, we'll see, I know I had them. <laughs> we'll see was almost always a yes. And, and so I could mention some of those, uh, and often the promise was not given. What was it like? First he would say, no, that's impossible. Don't you understand? We're not rich, okay? Then he'd have a few days with my mom, and she would work on him, and then it would, he'd come back and say, we'll see. And that's when I started thinking, let's plan on this. Now, here's my theory, and check it out. Which do you remember best? A promise that was kept or a promise that was broken? Now, maybe you're, you're saying, well, I'm totally balanced. I remember both very well. I remember the broken ones. And there's a lot of you like me. I remember times when I've either entrusted my money or entrusted my integrity or my reputation to certain people, and I remember specifically how much it hurt. And friends, when you're hurt, there's something that goes off in your brain, a chemical that's exuded that just etches that memory in there. And so I can remember those times in which I entrusted them with something that I thought was very important to me, and then, whether it was my reputation or my money, they just ruined it. And I was awake for days. Angry, upset, hard to, to, to come to grips with. How could somebody treat me that way? So I tend to remember those. Any of you like me, you remember the promises broken? Okay. How many of you remember best the promises kept? Okay. Good for you. And I hope it continues that way. You see, our series this, this year, for, as we approach Christmas is designed to take us back to the foundations of Christmas. There's, there's little regarding the birth of Jesus that you haven't heard before if you're especially my age or older. But much of it we only hear at Christmas. So every Christmas we hear some of the same great events that God has accomplished. Um, and we hear them about the birth of Christ. And, but it's the Christmas season when they come out. So every Christmas is like reminding us of what God has done. In sending his son to us. Now, uh, uh, we hear these reminders, and these days we'll hear the reminders either in church or in our homes, but usually nowhere else in, in our culture. And so, God desires that these be reminders so that our brain is stimulated. We remember what God did, we remember the facts, uh, you know, what has happened. But 
The Christmas story is also filled with words of emotion. Let me list some of these words that you find in the Christmas account of the birth of Jesus. Joy, fear, trust, praise, and even doubt. Christmas affects our souls. Christmas has always affected souls. When the work of God is going on in someone's life or or the lives of those around you, it, it affects you. And so that is the difference between being reminded and rekindling those terms in your hearts. So this week I want to work on the Christmas promise. The arrival of Jesus fulfills the promises of God, or as you might hear it called as you read the Bible, the prophecies of God. And consider a prophecy a promise, a promise made by God. And many of those prophecies about the arrival of Jesus were made in the first half of the Bible several centuries before Jesus arrived. And one of those promises deals with the city of Bethlehem. Now, you need to know this about Bethlehem. It's not a happening place. Not much goes on in Bethlehem. If you were Mary and Joseph and you had uh, come all the way from Nazareth, come all the way down following the Jordan River, crossed crossed the Jordan River, gone to Jericho, then went up the pass uh, to get to Jerusalem, then you'd have another six-mile walk, or Mary on a donkey, as we believe happened, um, uh, to get to Bethlehem. It's about five, six miles outside of Jerusalem. And you would have taken the southern uh, gate out of Jerusalem or skirted around the outskirts and, and gone right there into Bethlehem. A small little village, really. Village is the best way to put it. And let's say that it's like being on Route 66 uh, or, or, or even today the, uh, the interstates. About every two miles you would see a billboard. Right? You see billboards when you're driving. They catch your attention. That's why there's billboards. So if Mary and Joseph were on these uh, on the six-mile trek, they would have seen certain billboards about, hey, you're coming to Bethlehem. Why should we stay in Bethlehem? So one of the billboards would say, come see Rachel's tomb. She's been dead for a thousand years. Come see her. Or actually 2,000 years. Uh, the next one might have said, come see the, 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 the field where Boaz uh, proposed to Ruth. And by the way, while you're there, olives are on sale. Two pounds for the price of one. Or the next one might have been, come see the house where, where David was born. And, and by the way, while you're there, there's a little souvenir stand. You can take away the Star of David. And they're on sale this month too. One of the other billboards might have read something like, uh, come stay at the Bethlehem Inn, always a vacancy. That's what Mary and Joseph would have been coming to as they did that six-mile trek. Well, so they, you know, they, they do that and they get there, but because it's sort of the ancestral city of, of uh, Joseph, he knows quite well that nothing happened. Well, in his lifetime, nothing's happened there. In fact, the baby that's about to be born might be the biggest thing in the last hundred years. Something happens in 
Bethlehem about once every, if you do the math, about once every three to six hundred years. That's worth remembering. Now, when you only live 80 to 90 years, okay, in your life, you'd say nothing happened in my entire lifetime. So why is Bethlehem, therefore, important? Why is it one of the things that Jesus, uh, the promises about Jesus, that all this come out? Well, uh, if, if you're wondering about why Bethlehem, you go back to one of the promises that God makes. And, and, and I want to read that to you right now. Why is Bethlehem so important? I'm reading from Micah chapter 5, and I'm beginning at verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem, and Ephaphra is actually, um, what would you call it? It was a, a secondary name for that village. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Out of this small, insignificant town comes one whose influence... uh, or whose power uh, reaches to the ends of the earth. His greatness will be known all around. There will be very few people who will have never heard of this one. So why Bethlehem? Why, of all the villages, that one? It's because it fulfills one of the prophecies, or what I want to say, a promise of God. God promises once uh, David that his line would rule forever. So one of the promises about Bethlehem is, David, since you are from Bethlehem, you are going to be king, and, 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 and all of your ancestors will also be kings of Israel. But we know that that line got broken. It's not because God uh, broke his promise. It's because David didn't understand, nor did the Jews of his time, understand the promise that God was making. So foreign powers would, usually, would come in, and they would eventually break that line. And when God inspires Micah to write these words, more than one half of the nation has already been defeated and exiled and taken away as captives. There's only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin, and they are in major decline in wealth and power. So 250 to almost 300 years after David dies, Micah speaks about Bethlehem again. But this time, God places Bethlehem at the very core of his eternal plan. So as we read that, once again, it says, You, though you are small and insignificant, you, Bethlehem, are going to be the place of the great ruler. Only it's not the broken line of kings coming from David. But instead, this is a new line. In verse 3, it says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time that she is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So in that downward spiral of Israel, it continues until this baby is born. The people chosen by God will be defeated and exiled soon. 
by other nations. And there'll be no further rebellion going on in Israel. So very soon, the, uh, not just the, uh, the Persians and the Assyrians will come in, but very soon Rome will come in and, and be the government of Israel. David's line is broken. So when this was written and David has been dead for nearly 300 years, David's just a legend. The baby promised will not be necessarily a king, even though he's from the line of David. He will not rule necessarily at that, you know, as he takes power. He will not be one who rules in Jerusalem to begin with. The baby that's promised is the Messiah. And the Jews are expecting a wonderful warrior king like David. But Micah tells them, that's not the Messiah I'm sending, at least not initially. I'm sending you a different Messiah, and I want you to know far far superior to anybody David could ever be. And here's what it says in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock. You see that? Stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This Messiah is going to be both strong but also very gentle. His greatness will be measured more by his character and the source of his strength than the military victories that he will win. It goes back almost to David's childhood when he was chided by his brothers for being a shepherd that shouldn't be in battle. And what does David do? Goes and slays Goliath. Well, this goes back to those days. You remember, his brothers would have said, David, you remember way back when you were a shepherd and, and you wrote some wonderful poetry? His brother said, why don't you go back and do that? Well, they were ones who had this, this you might say, this view, that the real heroes of the world are the warriors. But God's view is the real heroes of the world are the shepherds. Those that come in humility. And, and it says this in, in Micah 5.5, 5, And he, this Messiah, will be their peace. And this is a peace not found because uh, a general wins every battle. Uh, Jesus probably wasn't well equipped to handle a sword. But it says a person is the peace. And last week, if you didn't hear this, understand that Jesus will bring peace to the nations eventually. But also right now he brings peace to our human relationships. He brings peace into our heart and he brings us peace with God. So when a promise is made like this, you're wondering why Bethlehem. The focus may be on Bethlehem, but really the focus should be on God. When God makes a promise, understand we should be wondering, Lord, what are you up to? What are you doing? And so behind all these promises about the Messiah, we understand it is God who makes them for us. These promises reveal the nature and the character of God. And part of that nature is he's a promise maker. He makes a series of promises to his people. An example, he promised Abraham, he promised Moses, he promised Joshua, he promises Elijah and Elisha. He says, if you obey me, this is what I will do for you. He makes those promises to all his great leaders. But he also makes promises through his prophets. And when he makes promises through his prophets, they're usually for, um, uh, for all the people to hear. 
and for all the people to enjoy and for all the people to trust and take part in. So this is a promising God. And he makes a promise, not just to one person, but through Micah and through Isaiah, and they lived at the same time, promising about the Messiah, the promised one. So God, you can read the prophecies and you'll understand he's a promise maker. But the second thing you need to know about God is he's a promise keeper. His prophecies come true. And Israel has the same problem with God that we do today. His promises seem to take way too long for us. Way too long. Let me give an example. There's a promise that Jesus is going to return. And he will start his eternal rule. And he will rule from Jerusalem. You know how long we've been waiting for that? 2,000 years since his resurrection and ascension. Now, let's face it. The average lifespan of each of us is, what, 80, 90 years? Some of you are going to far exceed that. I know that. You're going to be what we call long livers. Not Okay, but you're going to be long livers. And, 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 and God bless you. But most of us, you know, 80, 90 years, somewhere in there in the United States. We're, 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 we're going to live longer than any other generation before us. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But what's 80 or 90 years compared to 2,000? And so as we think of the marvelous promises God has made, sometimes we're thinking, Lord, what about this life? What about this life now? What, what promises would I see fulfilled now? And sometimes you'll read the Psalms and you realize this is exactly what the, what the people of God were going through. You know how often David looked at the Lord and said, Lord, how long? How long? Do I have to wait forever for you to show up? And God said, no, not forever, but a while longer. Not just yet. David, keep hiding in caves. I've got it all under control. David, Saul, he's right there in your cave going to the bathroom. Don't kill him. Hold off. I'll do it my way. Let's face it, we're a how long, Lord, people. And I really get that. Lord, how long till I'm healed? Lord, how long will I be depressed? Lord, how long till this relationship is healed? Lord, how long? Now, you need to understand this, that as God is a promise keeper, he keeps each of his promises perfectly. Perfectly. The promises about the Messiah depict him not to be a general, but a humble human known for caring more about the people he leads than the battles that he wins. Israel is not expecting this type of Messiah. We, we, you know, we'll watch football today and tonight, and we, we, we love the heroes who, who stand and do great things. This was not that type of Messiah who came to us in the flesh. He is called as a Messiah, also Emmanuel, 
living among us, and, and as he lives among us, he appears just like another rabbi teaching his followers certain things about their relationships with God and their relationships with one another. And these are things that they had never considered before. But when he returns to earth to rule as king, uh, understand that all humanity will honor him. Uh, he will be the all-powerful and completely perfect one. So God keeps his promises perfectly, and he also keeps each one of his promises or all of his promises. They're perfectly fulfilled. They're all fulfilled. So looking forward as, as, as we come now to about the year 50 or 60 A.D., Paul is writing about how, how you know, what type of a God is this? And he's trying to explain it to some very secular uh, 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 believers in Corinth who, who are trying to leave their old lifestyle and follow Jesus Christ uh, better than they ever have before. They're a lot like us, living in a secular society. And, and as he writes them, he's, he gives this great idea of who is God. First, Second Corinthians one twenty. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. No matter how many, that means all of them, they are, yes, perfectly fulfilled in Christ Jesus. All of God's promises are fulfilled or find, find their yes. It is done. It is uh, given to you, as I said, in Christ Jesus. So what did he say? Well, you, you look and you say, well, okay, some things are put off for a while. They're not broken. They're not fulfilled. And so they haven't yet been fulfilled because that God, that's who you are. We do not yet see the complete fulfillment of them, but all that God has promised will be fulfilled to the Jews and to all of humanity. In Jesus, each of his promises are kept Perfectly. And not one is broken. And we trust that there is more to come. So how about you? What is your how long in our short lifespan? Not looking at God's God's marvelous plan of all that he wants to accomplish, but your how long? How long will I suffer? How long will this relationship be fractured? How long will my reputation be tarnished? How long, Lord? I'm going to try to answer not how long, but the process and the attitude that you need to have to see his promises fulfilled to you. I have two pictures here. Let's look at the first. Can we do that? Yeah. Wouldn't you call this a typical manger scene? Pretty nice, huh? Uh, I don't know why there's light shining on Joseph and Mary. I've never figured that out, but maybe the star you know, was right over them and it only landed on them. But do you see the two stances that some people have? Don't you see that most are kneeling, but one is standing? Looking in. Now, you, you can't standing or kneeling. What does the attitude of standing tell you? To me, it talks to me of a sense of curiosity. Oh, baby born in a cave. 
I'll go take a look. Yep. Baby born in a cave. How about that? What does kneeling tell you? It's not the fact. It's the response that I have to have. This baby born in the cave fulfills all the promises of God perfectly. This baby born in this cave demands my worship. He is worthy of my calling God's almighty son. Do you get the difference? Because I I understand people being curious about, well, how could this happen? In fact, I was talking to a neighbor and he said, Jim, do you really believe in the virgin birth? And I went, that's a tough one. But yeah, I do. Why? Well, Bible says it. And more than that, I'm finding Jesus alive in my life. Is that enough? And he said, well, not for me, but I'm glad that's, you know, good for you, Jim. Okay, well, let me come back another time and try again. See, he has a curiosity. He wants to know the facts. What can possibly happen? And what, what is beyond just the natural progression of things? But those shepherds have been told, go find this baby. He is Christ the Lord. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. The Messiah you have been waiting for. The one who restores the kingdom of David, at least the the honor that David uh, so much deserves. Go find him there. And as they find him, it's just as the Lord says, and they bow and they worship. Isn't that amazing? Second picture. Come forward to uh, modern days. If you understand that the proper response to seeing God's promises fulfilled is worship, then here's something else that I think is of extreme importance. Um, about the year 400, somewhere between four and 500, uh, tradition took us to a place in Bethlehem that we thought was the rock outcropping or the, the actual cave where Jesus was born. And uh, again, it, it is the most likely one. Okay, there was not gold underneath or anything like that, but it's the most likely one. And, and so, uh, uh, very soon afterwards, as soon as, uh, Christians were allowed to build churches, they built a church outside of that rock, rock, rock outcropping. And it's called the Church of the Nativity. Now, as churches go, it's no Sistine Chapel. It doesn't compare with anything you'll find in Europe. It's not really big, but boy, is it ancient. Probably one of the top or oldest five churches still in existence today in terms of its construction. But as you go to that church, you go into a small uh, sanctuary, probably even smaller than this. And then you'd say, can I see the cave? And they'll say, yes. Walk through this door. That woman is not six foot seven. In fact, that woman is probably five foot three, five foot four. And I don't care if you're five foot nothing. To get into that cave, you're going to have to stoop over and walk in. Probably just the same way that Joseph did and brought Mary in to deliver. The only way into the cave of the nativity, not the church of the nativity, is that you stoop over in humility and you say, "Um, I can't get in there unless I do. That talks about 
when you approach God, you understand not only is he worth of, worthy of your worship, but he's worthy of you as a human saying, I'm not worthy. The way to see the promises fulfilled starts with your worship and your humility. You stop worshiping yourself. And you find Jesus. You look at the character of this baby born. And history says he was born. He was a real figure. But you look at him and say he's just not another guy. He's God's son. Your humility and your worship come together. And that's how you begin to see the promises of God fulfilled throughout all of his, you know, eternal plan, but also how you're open to his promises is being filled, fulfilled right now in your life. Now, I have a thought here that I'd like to, each week I've given you a challenge. I talked about uh, the fullness of time had come and that, that you understand the fullness by just taking some time alone to think through what God has done. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the glory of God in that he was the word and we challenge you to be the word and, and you find a way to talk about what God is doing in your life. We talked last week about peace and that we seek uh, peace with God. We seek peace in our hearts and peace with others. Today we're talking about promise. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who understands that the promises of God are, are perfectly kept in all of them, are perfectly kept, each one, but all of them together. Have you ever thought of, wow, could I reflect God in some way this Christmas by being a promise maker and a promise keeper? Now, I'm great at making promises. Promise keeping? Got to work on that. And who would be the ones that want to be hearing, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what these promises are? I'll be honest, there'll be ones I'll be with Christmas Day. There's very special people who get into my home Christmas Day. And as I'm celebrating Christmas with them, they need to be hearing about the promises of God, but they need to be hearing it from me. And and not just about, you know, reading certain passages, but I want to look them in the eye, and I want to be able to say, unlike my dad who says, you know, I I don't make promises because I just... Can't guarantee I'll fulfill them. I want to be ones who are making promises to people and saying, and by the way, come to me if you don't think I'm living up to them. Go ahead. I actually invite that. Thought about my daughter who was married this year. My son who just flew in from New York. My new son-in-law. Thought about these people that I'll be spending time with, and of course my wife, what would be the promises that Barb would say, go ahead, fulfill them, go ahead. You're called to reflect God. You're called to reflect him in such a way in which you're not saying this is what I hope to do, that's called a New Year's resolution, but you're called to say, As God gave his promises to his people, I want to make promises to you. What would they be? 
Be in awe of the God who makes and fulfills all of his promises and understands he calls you to be like him. Let's pray. Oh, almighty God. Prophecies are not just for intellectual stimulation. They will remind us of who you are and what you're like and the promises that you've made. That's, that's wonderful. But promises are also to rekindle in us the joy, the conviction, the commitment. And just like your promises draw us to you when we see them fulfilled. So we want to enjoy this Christmas season the power of a promise that's kept. Father, who are the people around us? Who are the ones where we assume they know we love them? Who are the ones that could be greatly encouraged by just, I want to do this for you this year. I want to be this type of person for you this year so that I might reflect the promise-making and the promise-keeping God. Let's be silent. Let's think that through. How will you say it? How will you show it? How will you fulfill it? What outcome could God have in mind in those relationships as you are a promise keeper? Husbands, wives, children whose parents are still alive. What outcome could he have? Father, thank you. Thank you that we have over 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. Thank you that they are being fulfilled. Some are completely fulfilled. And we are waiting now for total fulfillment in his return. To him be glory forever and ever, and God's people said, Amen.